0: back to the Birth Booth podcast with me your host Annie. Joining us today we have Dr Chimma, Dr Remy and our consultant midwife Mary. Welcome to the Birth Booth podcast everyone.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank
2: you for having us.
1: Thank, Thank you. you for having us.
0: Great. Well before we get into this um, here on the Birth Booth we do like to kick things off with an icebreaker question so are you ready? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Who was your favourite school teacher in school and why?
3: I will go because I know this. My favourite school teacher was (laughs) Mrs Tyler. She was my maths school teacher and in secondary school Um, and she actually really made me find a real passion and love for maths. So much so I thought I could do it at A-level and then realised that was a whole different kettle of fish but she did give me a definite love for numbers.
2: So so my my favourite school teacher was actually in primary school so I think... um, I went to a primary school where the teachers changed every year. But then when she sort of inherited us in year three, she followed us all the way through to year six. Um, and I remember her being quite um, positive and like pushing us to achieve a lot. So, yeah, so that would be her. Her name is Mrs. Errington.
1: Um, I would say favorite is like a, is a tough word to use. But what I would definitely, I would have to shout out a teacher called Miss Reynolds. Because I remember one time, I think it was, GCSE Mm -hmm. chemistry she turns around and she says Chima how does water evaporate (laughs) right Mm -hmm. and I could tell she had so much faith in me answering this question (laughs) and I had absolutely no idea and she then looked so disappointed in me and and that disappointment you know when someone looks at you with so much disappointment you never want to disappoint them again (laughs) and then from that point onwards i was just on point so that always that always sticks like as a memory for me sticks out like someone believing in you and then you then you letting them down was like really pushed me forward i'm not sure i'd say she was my favorite teacher but i guess uh that's my most memorable kind of teaching um you know, automatically my mind goes back to primary school, but then I can't mm-hmm. remember anything about my primary school teachers. So <laughs> yeah. how can they be my favorite? And I'm sorry for overcomplicating this question. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was interesting anyway to t- talk about Miss Reynolds, you know. <laughs>
0: yeah. I just think it's so amazing how teachers can have such a profound influence on us that even we even in our at our age now, we can still remember our teachers from primary school <laughs> from primary school.
1: Yeah. Of course, yeah, of
0: course. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing job. <laughs> so um, yeah um, guys if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are um, and the great work you do, maybe a bit of a background in terms of what you do specialise in and that would be great. Maybe we should start with Remy.
2: Yeah okay so um, my name's Remy so I'm an obstetric and gynaecology doctor. I currently work in the London area um, and specifically like north and east London um, I've been doing it for roughly four years, um, not including my maternity leave. Um, yeah, and I've just got a real passion for women's health in general. Um, but especially in the area of London that I work, I see a lot of women from different ethnic minorities. And just the way they engage in their healthcare is very different. So I think that's what led myself and a friend and colleague to start um, an Instagram page, so a chatterbox um, where we've just got this initiative where we're just focusing on educating women about the different conditions that they go through at different stages of life
0: yeah.
2: um, and with the aim to like have workshops and um, uh, you know and just engage with the community at large just so that we can create a change from within. Amazing. What's about
3: you Mary? Uh, so I am Mary Dimbo, I'm a consultant midwife based in London Hospital in the South um, East Borough. I have been um, a midwife for 10 years qualified so in maternity in the maternity environment for 13 years now. Um, I have a special interest in perinatal mental health and um, outcomes for women from Black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds. So I do a lot of work nationally and locally, looking at ways to improve service provisions and looking at the culture in hospitals and how we can affect change positively.
0: Amazing. Great. And you,
1: Chimal? OK, yes. So I have I graduated as a doctor in 2007 and have been a GP since 2012 in Elephant and Castle, where we have a large uh, proportion of well patients from everywhere, but specifically West Africans as well. I'm, my dad's Nigerian. My mom's Romanian. Uh, I'm a GP. Um, I have done uh, specialist work in um, drugs and alcohol addiction. However, I don't. Well, I mean that that's part of general practice anyway. But I don't do it in specialist services anymore, as i.e. detox units. So yeah. So currently, I'm working as a GP in uh, Elephant and Castle, um, and obviously, we deal a lot with, um, you know, uh, pregnant pregnant women in the earlier stages, um, and and the less complicated cases, you know, when obviously the the experts take over.
0: Amazing. Well, um, today the conversation will really be um, facilitated around understanding the disparities um, in healthcare amongst Black women. Um, And so before we get into some of the questions, I think what, what I really wanted to find out was, in general, how has COVID affected your practice area, if it has in any way?
2: Uh, So I can go first again. So um, because um, obstetrics is an emergency service, um, it's not been cut, so to speak, in like all the other specialties. Um, A lot of our elective work and elective, like, you know, your gynecology appointments and things like that have all moved to telephone calls. Um, But for the largest part, most pregnant women are um, still seen in hospital. Um, I think the major change for the pregnant woman is that their partners aren't really involved as much because they can't be in hospital as such. Um, mm-hmm. In my hospital specifically, the partners are allowed to be with them in their rooms once they're delivering, but once they're delivered and they're on the postnatal ward, then the woman's then by herself until discharge. And um, so I think for a lot of women, the, um, I guess the experience of pregnancy with your partner might have changed
3: during this period. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit similar for myself. So we, inpatient wise, we did have to make amendments, which we are sl- slightly starting to reverse so we can have partners if we want to establish labour in one to one rooms. We've now reintroduced visiting um, from 2 to 8pm, but previously we were a trust that had 24 hour partner stay. So for women who had had babies with us before that's quite a big change and a significant change for them we have not been able to reintroduce partners into scans um, which has really proven quite difficult for women that are receiving um, you know bad news at those times because yeah. of social distancing and being able to kind of limit the potential spread of covid we've just not been able to reintroduce it in that area antenatally and postnatally we've, we're doing much more virtual working so um, we're having to really look at how we're maintaining our safeguarding for the vulnerable women, um, women who English isn't a first language, yeah. because those um, avenues are not accessible to all. Um, and postnatally, it's a follow-up, we've, we did see a small increase in our postnatal readmissions for breastfeeding because there wasn't the usual support. Again, we were one of the few hospitals that were able to offer day one visits for women in our catchment area that went home. Okay. Um, and so we're just we're starting to reintroduce some of that but um as a trust we're still really hit staffing wise we've lost half of our community team to shielding or distant working because of COVID complications so we just don't have the workforce to do the work that we were previously doing so the level of care we're able to provide has changed but we're trying to adapt as best as possible okay
1: yeah pretty much the same in general practice in terms of radically changed in terms of the antenatal routine checks that we were doing uh, you know they drastically got cut down postnatal postnatal checks baby checks at 6 weeks were just not happening um, we were trying we, we were trying as much as we can to fit them in but the problem with covid was the the guidance around what, if you go to any any GP practice now, every GP practice is doing something slightly different. You know, some people are uh, seeing patients on site. Some people are say, uh, sending people to other um, cold sites to be seen or other hot sites. So, yeah, everything has been massively disrupted. And also, I think what we've really noticed as well is patients as well are not contacting us um, mm. as much as they were uh you know for a whole wide variety of reasons you know partly because we have gone uh you know to complete distance working you know it's t- it's all telephone or video consult or email now yeah. w- which you know obviously excludes um like um mary already mentioned the the non-english speakers yeah but uh but also as well people are just avoiding seeing a doctor because <laughs> of of coronavirus they think that we're we the people have all the coronavirus you know? <laughs> i mean I, I understand you know that uh a and e saw something quite similar in terms of yeah. they, they they saw a massive dip in their uh um amount of attendances i don't know if that translates directly to um you know, gynae-related problems and, and obstetric-related problems. But, yeah, for us, COVID, I mean, COVID has changed the world yes. completely, massively, yes. and it, it's it, it, it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge that we're still working on, you know?
0: Absolutely. How do you feel like um, women, um, especially pregnant women, how do you feel like they're coping with this or trying to cope with these changes at the moment? Have you seen anything positive from this, or has it been very daunting, very scary apprehensive for them what are the kind of feelings that um, you're seeing in practice
3: I think initially because of the advice around shielding it was quite plain cut for pregnant women beyond a certain gestation that okay I need to stay at home this is what I need to do to be safe and those around them were probably adhering to that and trying to keep them as safe as possible there was a lot of fear around then you've protected yourself for the last you know 10 however many weeks and now you're having to leave to go into an environment that potentially has COVID so it was about reassuring people about that we would made the um, necessary arrangements to keep the environment safe for them and those types of things but I think now it's harder because there's just such a large amount of unknown The guidance isn't as clear people don't really know what they are and aren't supposed to be doing should I go out on a Monday and try and get a half-price meal should I be mm-hmm. shielding myself at home should I? Mm-hmm. so I think now is where for us especially in my unit I think the women did so well that the number of cases whilst as a trust we had a thousand maternity were really not as severely affected because the women were more shielding so well it'll yeah. be interesting to see what happens now with the guidance not being quite so clear and what people then end up doing and how it affects us.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting. So I think a lot of women are probably, well, a lot of women I encountered actually were probably initially more anxious about it. Um, Mm. And especially so during the beginning, if you came onto the labor ward and you had a temperature, you were automatically sort of barrier nursed, and it was a COVID room and your partner couldn't leave the room. Um, And that would have created a lot of anxiety um and once they were investigated a lot of those women didn't in fact have covid um whereas now um especially in my trust anyway they're moving towards the blanket screening so that every woman that comes in gets screened for it every partner that comes in is screened for it okay. so it, it does definitely seem as time has gone on it's a lot more mainstay mm-hmm. um you know like i was on yeah you know, i was you know over the weekend I was at work and there are still a lot of women who express anxiety over being on the postnatal ward alone um, because they don't have help with the baby, especially if they've had a cesarean section and they're in yeah. pain and they can't stand up. And I just think for, for, you know, for that reason, a lot of, a lot of the experiences will have been changed during COVID mm-hmm. um, and then they all get anxiety related to that. Um, but, you know, I guess it's, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, It's a testament of the times we're in, but it's definitely not nice, I guess, for the women. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I wish I had something positive because you said, have you seen? uh, I mean, I think what's been positive is how uh, so many different organizations on their own back have reacted uh, and patients as well but i've seen much the same just a massive increase in anxiety and the it i think it's completely right it's the fear of the unknown and because yeah. the truth is that we we don't know so yeah sorry i can't i i i from my perspective as a general uh, general practitioner and i'm finding it very very helpful as well hearing all these hospital perspectives that to be honest i hadn't even thought of until this point right now when uh, you know, it's really uh, uh, had to be confronted by it. So, yeah, mm. it's it's re- it's it's really, really, really tough.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting from your perspective as well as a GP. You're usually the first point of call for a lot of women who are pregnant. Mm. What mm. are the attitudes you're seeing in terms of referral? Are women self-referring or are they going directly to the hospital? What, what's I... the atmosphere been like with that?
1: Yeah, I think that there has been a massive drive for um, self-referral. So um, you can now self refer uh, My local hospitals are Guy's and St. Thomas's in, in Kings and they have the, um, uh, the, the referral forms on their actual websites as well. And I mean, but you know, general practice is overrun and we were trying to, you know, it sounds bad coming from you know these pregnant women have you know their their partners aren't around, they have no support, and then the yeah. GP the GPs are telling them to self refer, you know, as well. And and we're difficult to well, we're not difficult to access because you can call us. My my um my practice particularly has good access, but I know other um, practices have absolutely shocking access. I, I the, the practice that that I i register at you know if you try and call them you're 30 minutes on the phone so that, that that leaves your only option being going online if you're that yeah. way in- inclined and self self-refer- self-referring and um you know that's where that's where some of the problems get generated because it is important that your gp knows you know and you know there's that gap between if you do self-refer refer yourself we might not know that you're pregnant. And then it's going to be a while before the hospital manages to contact us and let us know. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, but yeah, there's definitely been a massive drive for, for self-referral. Yeah. And, and I've seen it, I've seen like cases where that in itself has led to things falling through the cracks, yeah, if you, if you will. Um, And I'm not advocating for, you know, Not employing that for the simple, straightforward cases where uh, the patients aren't vulnerable, they're educated and they can handle that. But you know, because and I'm not also saying that GPs were completely shut down during coronavirus because my GP colleagues will will get on my case as well. But uh, you know, it it has been difficult for patients to uh, to you know access their primary care physician, and I do Mm -hmm. think more more stuff although overall I think hospitals had less stuff I think maybe you know for something that you were really worried about people were were accessing say early pregnancy unit directly or yeah. you know or self-referring for antenatal care do do you do you work on the early pregnancy unit uh, Remy
2: yeah so when we cover um, gynaecology we we interact with the unit in that respect yeah
1: and w- what were you seeing in terms of EPU
2: attendances? Um, so I, again, so again, because like the early pregnancy unit also had to change their mode of working. So where they might call people back for repeat scans and things like that, there wasn't that capacity. Yeah. The partners weren't allowed in the room. Uh-huh. Um, but for us, um, where we would see a woman in A&E who had symptoms of a miscarriage, it was still quite straightforward to get them seen in the early pregnancy unit. Um, and as far as I'm aware, all the local GPs were still able to refer in, um,
1: yeah, just yeah, that yeah,
2: the referrals was. were screened, I think a bit more. Mm. Um, and if they were sort of 10 or 11 weeks and they were a week or two out from their first booking scan, then they wouldn't get an early pregnancy scan.
1: Yes. Yes. Actually it's coming. Yeah. It's coming back to me now, actually, wow. because they changed the whole process of us because it used to be a walk-in, but it was no longer, mm. it was no longer walk-in. Mary, do you work on an EPU?
3: No, but in my role, kind of, especially during COVID, we had to take over the floor where EPU were, and we, uh-huh. we were one of the units that have always operated a walk-in service,
1: ah, okay. and so it,
3: we then had to change from that to appointment-based so that we were aware of who was coming in and could screen,
1: uh-huh, um, yeah. which
3: was quite difficult for the women because, you know, a lot of people use EPU as a way of relieving anxieties in those first couple of weeks where yeah, the pregnancy is quite precious and especially if you had multiple miscarriages before and things like that so mm. it was a different way of working again for
0: Wow that's so interesting I feel like so much has changed um and none of us could have anticipated any of these changes and I think we're all just trying to kind of manage that manage that expect manage our expectations and you know do what we can to um towards a you know successful outcome to some extent mm. um I- just I think for us,
3: sorry, definitely for us what Covid did highlight is there's a lot of unnecessary red tape in the NHS. Mm. Things such as virtual working, getting VPNs to work from home, you asked for it before. It was like you were asking literally for to move a mountain. <laughs> yeah. Covid happened, and it was like bam, bam, bam. Here, take, take Right it. now. And it's like well, <laughs> that, exactly, that, exist yeah. when it's safe, it's sensible. Like why we always try and fill a building that doesn't have space. We're always constantly looking for office space, looking for desk space, looking for computers that are literally 15 years out of like service. <laughs> and then it takes a pandemic for us to say, you know, as an NHS, when you look at it as a business model. This doesn't make sense, and it's mm. why the NHS struggles because we forget about the business side of it. What makes sense in the private sector? You have, you know, people working from home. You have fluid working. It just so that was, I think, the positive positive side of it is it it has forced change that otherwise would have genuinely taken decades to happen.
1: Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent.
0: Absolutely. I mean, just kind of stirring the conversation more towards the embrace report now. Um, so, in relation to the Embrace report, um, black women are said to, you know, be uh, dying, are dying at five times the rate as their white counterparts. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is?
2: Um, so, I personally think the why is very um, hard to answer because it won't be one answer, if that makes sense. I think the mm-hmm. why is rooted in it's rooted in immigration, it's rooted in racism, it's rooted in systemic racism, um, as well as access to healthcare care for um, Black women, other ethnic minorities, and just other groups of women. So um, the Embrace report I think was quite comprehensive, um, and I've had this, because of course we've got this Instagram page, it was also one of the drivers that made us start the page, but as time has gone on and we keep hearing this five times more, five times more, I always keep saying, actually, is it our responsibility to explain what the five times more means? Because the rate of maternal death in the UK is still, compar- it's still relatively low in comparison to sort of low income countries and even sort of other high income countries yeah. um, but when you break down the you know so, so for instance in the last report 209 women died and when you look at all the characteristics of the 209 women who died black women were probably overrepresented in that group in comparison to the number of black women that are in the birthing population full stop
3: yeah.
2: um which which is obviously true but it's also true for women with um Mental health conditions, women in abusive relationships, women who are in the um, like sort of lower socioeconomic working class, um, and then when you look at that, in, so if you say oh black women, but then also black women are more like you know because of the immigration status and things like that, are more likely to be overrepresented in those other groups where there is harm um, and risk of maternal death. Um, it kind of starts to tease out the why, um, and so for me. Um, my sort of straightforward answer is I don't necessarily think the why is biological I think it's um, political I think it's socio-economic class mm. and I think it's to some extent I think it's educational attainment as well mm. um, and, and interaction with the healthcare system um, and then there's also this cultural element that I think black doctors will will mostly be like yeah there's a cultural difference that comes into play when you interact with the healthcare that I don't necessarily think is spoken about as openly in our own culture um, but yeah I'd be interested to hear what everybody else says.
0: Can you give me an example of that when you say culture? Um, so
2: so, for instance, so um, I growing up had period pain, had really severe period pain to the extent that I missed a day of school every month. I would go, I'd be at home, I'd be vomiting, I'd have a water bottle, um, and the only pain relief I ever had was paracetamol. Um, my mum, because she never had pain to that extent, and neither did most of my sisters we never really went to see the GP about it. Um, and when I was probably 16 or 17, I went to the doctor myself, but again, I didn't have the whereabouts to you know, demand extra treatment. So it was literally paracetamol and ibuprofen for most of my adult life. When I got to university, um, I was like oh okay maybe I'll do the pill discuss the pill with my mum oh no it will affect your fertility oh no don't do this and I was a medical student at the time but mm. I still for the longest time went along with that um, that ideology of it's just everything you know it's just natural yeah. it's something that happened um, and interestingly I had a similar conversation with someone at work who is a Nigerian woman and who was like oh my daughter won't take anything more than paracetamol for period pain so I think if we think about it culturally we are sort of brought up to just endure pain and not complain and get on with it Mm -hmm. and then unfortunately we carry those behaviors into our interactions with the healthcare professionals um, and if they tell you one thing you're just more likely to accept it so that's what I mean about the culture um, playing a part I don't think it's the main part because there are also tons of black women I see as patients who are quite you know aware of their own health needs and um, and making their case known. And then there's also the part where they're just ignored as well. Um, but it's definitely multifactorial.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, well, Mary, what's your thoughts? Um, I, I
3: agree with Remy, it's hard. The why is a difficult, you know, it's a, it's a question that is a difficult one to answer, but I think a lot of obstetrics and gynaecology, you work with your math. But actually when you look at what the foundation of what the mass is expected to do what you would expect growth what you do of a baby what you would expect weight of a mother what you would expect all of those things to be as a norm is based on the population of an average white person so when you then quantify that to people that don't fall within that boundary you're going to get different outcomes but do we necessarily Look into that when we look at the rationale for why we 're getting these numbers and figures, so I think mm. the basis of obstetrics and gynecology isn't, is something that we need to maybe look at and see how can we better interpret results to look at the individuals that we care for, which is so different now today than what it was when we were practicing medicine fifty years ago one hundred years ago, however long ago it might be, and again it is an understanding of culture and an understanding of cultural difference and The example I have, I am a Nigerian. Um, When we have babies, there's an idea around um, stretching your baby. So you do certain exercises with your baby's limbs and your baby's arms. And it's a cultural thing. Like my mum has done it with my children. I remember my elder sister having it done. It doesn't cause any harm, but there's a belief that it does good. I was on the ward one day and I had a woman who was, there for a week so she was at that point where she felt that the baby would have benefited from some of the stretching techniques she was overseen by a white midwife and she was referred to safeguarding they felt that she was hurting mm-hmm. the baby mm-hmm. and so when I now sat down and said well you... I sat down and spoke to the woman and spoke to her about things that we do and the places we do these things in and why this has been perceived one way and when I I fully understood what the intention was behind it and what that meant but equally sat down and spoke to the midwife and spoke to her about the differences in culture and what that means and what education and it's just there is a lack of knowing and so yeah. sometimes we see something and we think we're doing good because we're not offering pain relief because you, you're not making a noise. You're fine. You're coping really well. You don't need that epidural. Oh, you're doing this to your baby. That could only possibly be harming your baby. But yeah. it's not an understanding that if I'm silent and clicking my fingers, it doesn't mean I'm coping. I might be in an extreme amount of pain, but mm. I don't know how to vocalize that. Or if I'm doing this, it's because that's a belief I have culturally that's passed down from generations. And it is an understanding of culture. And I just don't think there's really enough education around that for us to mm. understand each other's differences. Mm. Who do
0: you think, who do you think um, needs to be the one to offer that education?
2: I think that's hard, though, because I think, um, I mean, like, well, especially in the units I've worked in, there are, you know, there are African women who work as midwives. So they are represented in the midwife community, um, but yet their white colleagues are still necessarily none the wiser about the different cultural elements. Mm. Um, definitely as a doctor, I feel that ne- I feel that I'm underrepresented in the sort of obstetricians category. Um, and I'm definitely much more junior than my consultant. So again, trying to get that culture across to them is quite hard. Mm. But I think um, I was at um, the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology put on a talk about sort of addressing racial disparities within the maternity sector and um, one of the consultants there raised a really important point if you look at the structure of the NHS which we saw during the Covid times as well there are black doctors there are black midwives there are black nurses but when you look at the management within the hospital units they're not necessarily representative of the people who work within the unit Mm. Um, and most sort of black healthcare professionals will know that they're more likely to be penalized at twice the rate than their white counterparts. So then you're working in a, you're working in a system that doesn't necessarily work for you as a healthcare professional, but also doesn't work for patients that look like you. Um, and then you're stuck in a position where, how do I address it without then being on the wrong foot in the department or um, looking as if I'm causing trouble? Um, so I think it's hard, but I do think that there needs to be a level of bravery within healthcare professionals. And I completely, like the example Mary gave was completely spot on. The person that needed to be educated about what had happened was the midwife who'd, who'd, who'd raise that safeguarding referral. Mm. Um, and, you know, because it becomes a thing of, you know, actually, as a Nigerian woman who needs to stretch my baby, I can't do that in public. That shouldn't be the take home. The take home should be people are allowed to have different cultural Practices and they can have that in the mainstay of the community, and it's totally acceptable as -hmm. long there is as long as there's no harm associated with it. So yeah, so I think it's I think it's hard, but I think it definitely involves a level of bravery and a level of speaking up. Um, But I do think as patients as and as a population as well, um, if you see um, a black doctor or a black midwife or a black nurse and you don't necessarily feel they're speaking up. There might also be a reason why they're not, and it might just be because mm-hmm. within their working environment, they are, you know, fearful for their job or for, yeah. for the environment which in which they work in. Mm.
0: What What are your thoughts in relation to um, that question, chima
1: I mean, I, I thought that Remy put it beautifully, and I really like how you emphasized. So that embrace report was 2015, 2017, two thousand and fifteen, two thousand and seventeen, two hundred and nine women died out of over two million. So that is a really, really low amount. But what to me is really powerful in that is, even in that small, small, small sample size, you know, uh, Black and Asian women were massively overrepresented. So that just shows, to me, the power of these uh, systemic uh, structures that we have that disadvantage, black people uh, at, at, you know we're talking obviously there's other um groups of people that are discriminated against but th- for this podcast we're talking about black people black you know at, at every at every conceivable point you know from before you speak to your from before you speak to your gp to when you speak to your gp to when you speak to your obstetrician and i think I think the other thing that was powerful for me is to remember that the institution of medicine is fiercely based on racist ideas, you know, um, uh, stuff like, uh, I know, uh, Mary Stopes was based on, you know, trying to get, uh, eugenics, uh, pure race, and all of these ideas have yeah. filtered into these are, these are all echoes of the past. That are still very much ingrained in. So yeah, I, 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 I completely agree with everything. And it's not a simple one thing leads to another. It's all it's all linked. It's multifactorial. Yes. I Don't I don't believe it's you know biological. You know, I remember being at med school and them teaching me. Uh, thank you for sharing that that really personal story about um, you know your your periods. But I remember they would teach me that that black women had higher pain thresholds i remember being taught that as a medical student what what kind of thing is that to teach medical student and i mean i'm kind of old but i'm not that old this is like (laughs) this is like 2003 2004 you were still teaching that stuff you know which then you know feeds into how yes how you you know i remember one of my take-home messages because you know the things you learn as a medical student even though they become rapidly irrelevant they stay with you i remember they used to be there used to be like oh you know there used to be this thing about are they opiate seeking this is opiate seeking behavior and it's like Mm -hmm. no this this person's in pain if someone says that they're in pain you believe that they're in pain you Mm -hmm. you know because they're black doesn't mean they're more likely to to exhibit Mm -hmm. opiate seeking behavior do you know what i'm saying these are actual things that were taught taught to me so, that was
3: around a lot around sickle cell as well um, yes yes definitely the, yeah the perception of pain that how people perceived what uh, someone in crisis was going through and whether or not they were seeking particular pain relief because most people in crisis will tell you what drugs work for them ask mm. them what works and but then it was that perce- that belief from the medical profession that actually they're opiate seeking they're asking for this because they're looking for and I, how how can you quantify that? Have you ever had a sickle cell crisis to know the amount of pain that's passing through that body, person's body to say that they're just looking for their next hit or they're telling you that this is the medication that works best for me? Mm.
0: Absolutely. I mean, even off of the back of that, I've heard some people say that um, black women are at a greater risk of mortality due to pre existing factors such as fibroids, uh, sickle cell, preeclampsia, or gestational uh, diabetes. What are your thoughts? On, on that?
2: So I think um, when it comes down to like the different, so for, so for instance, so, so for preeclampsia, I was always taught in med school, oh, black women are overrepresented in this group. Um, for gestational diabetes, they say it's the Asian population. Um, and for you know, fibroids, yes, we know that fibroids are found in Sort of 70 odd percent of women will have a fibroid, but they're not problematic in everybody. But yes, black women have fibroids more. Um, and if you have fibroids, you're more likely to bleed at delivery. But you know, when it comes, so for me, I feel like when it comes to the medical conditions, um, that's something that we as medical professionals know how to treat. So if you say, mm. oh, women with preeclampsia are more likely to die given birth. This in this country that's well recognised. So they've got so many screening tools for preeclampsia. They've mm. got pro, they've got prevention tools for preeclampsia, and if a woman is has preeclampsia in pregnancy, her care is very different from from the care of a woman without. Um, so for the mere fact that a black woman is quote-unquote more likely to have this condition does not translate to the a black woman is more likely to die because mm-hmm. preeclampsia in and of itself is treatable. Yeah. Um, perinatal mortality so a stillbirth and things like that being overrepresented in the group of women with diabetes again we know Asian women are more likely to have it um, and therefore their care should be according to the condition they have in pregnancy and I think the same should be said for black mm-hmm. women if we know being black is an independent risk factor for maternal mortality then they should just have individualized antenatal care intrapartum care and postnatal care mm-hmm. so that if they do have any of these things that get picked up it gets treated yeah. and I think what's interesting is when you read the embrace report most of the most of the conditions are treatable once they're yes. recognized. Mm -hmm. And it's the lack of the recognition. Mm. And so when I say it's multifactorial, if a woman comes in and she's not being heard, that's lack of recognition.
3: Mm. If a
2: woman has a symptom at home and because of family pressure doesn't present, that's also a lack of recognition. Mm -hmm. Um, And if a woman presents and you underestimate what's wrong with her, then that's negligence on the clinician's part, but it's also lack of recognition. So I think um, for the mere fact that they can quote oh, these conditions are more prevalent in Black people shouldn't translate to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, where are they getting this information from? Um, so I feel like when I was in medical school, absolutely every condition under the sun minus cystic fibrosis was more <laughs> attribu- attri- like a- attributed to Black people, like genuinely. And then you're like, where's the research? Where are we getting this from? Is it just hearsay? Um, And I've seen as many white and Asian women with periclampsia as I've seen with black women. Mm. So it's like, what what, is this research good quality? Is it something that we need to be consuming? Um, And especially when I look at the Asian population, because the area in which I work, there there is a high proportion of the women that come through are South Asian it's probably not their biology that makes them more likely mm-hmm. to have di- diabetes. It's mm-hmm. their diet, it's their mm-hmm. environment, it's their living mm-hmm. condition. Mm-hmm. And again, taking all of that into account, they're more likely to eat rice and ghee. And even in our African diet, we're more likely to have carbs. Yes. Um, and like, you know, Nigeria... Historically, from my understanding, if you had a car, it was a symbol of wealth. It was the poor people that walked around. So then mm-hmm. you come to this country, and we're less likely to go for thirty-minute walks after dinner. So you're more likely to sit in pregnancy, and therefore you're more likely to get um, insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So it's thinking about behaviours and culture and diet and exercise, as opposed to just attributing it to the colour of someone's skin.
0: Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. What about bit- you,
0: Mary or Chimma?
1: I was just gonna say it, it has been really challenging for me uh because you know I was taught all of this stuff, and now I have to unlearn it all. Mm-hmm. Do you know what i'm saying it was it's like a real challenge and and that's me as a as a you know a Nigerian it's like oh wow, okay, so I mean all of those um conditions like you said, it's not because they're black it's because of all these other factors that mm. sometimes black people are more uh, affected by for whatever reason, for, for yeah. a very complex multifactorial reason. But yeah, for me it's the, the one I'm struggling with at the moment is 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 um there's they're starting to pick apart uh EGFR, which is a measure of your renal function. And um you know classically they always said uh, black people had a you know higher creatinine, and you know as a result, if we saw a creatinine in a black person, we would be le- we would be more um, relaxed about how we would deal with it than uh, a white person. Um, and and me as a GP, because I don't see the um, extreme end of disease, mm-hmm. that has only been beneficial. Uh, well in in my in my short-term view because who knows if it leads to more problems down the line yeah in, t- in terms of like protecting people from because there is a problem with over medicalizing things and over investigating things which is kind of out of the remit of what we're talking about at the moment mm-hmm. but that's that's the thing that I'm struggling with the, the most in terms of learning all of these things that we've been told are mm-hmm. are are you know in black and white this is this is uh the truth about black people this you know and just having to unlearn all those things sorry to the button
3: no yeah i just i second and third all of those points it is every it is all multifactorial and i just think trying to simplify it just purely to the color of a person's skin where somebody is from is just it's ridiculous it can't it's not that simple and it's not that basic and we overlook so many things and we try to simplify it in such Mm -hmm. a way. We need to acknowledge that there's difference because of maybe perhaps where you come from and, you know, your genetic makeup, but we also have to look a little bit deeper into it. It's not just because I'm black, therefore I. Yes. Mm.
0: Yes. I mean, how do you think that black women can protect themselves against some of the things that you um, have mentioned and against these statistics? Are there any strategies that you think that we can do um, You know, during, during the perinatal period?
3: I feel like at the moment there are broadly two groups of people. The ones that whatever the doctor or the midwife says they do and the ones that have read and read and read and read and read and, read and are really well informed um, and so you might feel as a medical professional that you're constantly coming up, you're constantly combating things, you're constantly fighting back questions or explaining rationale and I think actually being challenged and being asked questions is the mo- the only way you can really have an idea and a handle on your own kind of health and what's going to happen to you and how to like you know bear impact on that but I think too many people are really relaxed and don't ask questions. Like I do a lot of birth debriefs with women, and I'll tell them, you know, you were given an antihypertensive, and I'll say, Was I? I didn't know that happened. So, what are our conversations with women? How are we really gaining consent to do things, to give things? And how how are you giving me a pot of medication? And I'm just taking that. And I just think that we all need to be a little bit more involved in in what what's about to happen to us. There's lots of information out there and it, it's one thing to Google and to see the far left and far right. But RCOG have, you know, evidence-based information. If you go on to NICE, it has evidence-based information. If you go on to um, birth choices and, you know, rights in pregnancy and um, labour pain, there's so many accredited places that you can go to just to do real light reading, just to get the basics so that when someone is saying something to you, there's it triggers something that you've read there's a slight understanding but then the difficulty with that is what do we do for people that don't have access to those things so we as healthcare providers really have we have to make sure that we're not assuming knowledge which often we do oh yeah this is the next step because obviously that's what we're gonna do no Mm. we need to make Mm. sure that when we're informing you we're telling you why this is, what the alternatives are, because I can't just tell you now's time for a cesarean. What's the alternative? What mm. if that doesn't happen? What are we doing next? What's my concern? Sometimes your time constraint, it can't happen. But antenatally, I think our antenatal education in this country is, is hit and miss. If you have £400 and you go to NCT, you get a certain kind of antenatal education. Some hospital antenatal education is amazing. Others is not so good. It just There should just be a better way of uniforming the information that we're giving to women so that people are just empowered they've got knowledge is power yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah i think i agree i think i definitely agree with everything mary said and um actually when she was saying about the two groups of um women for me it's like i feel like the women that tend to fall in that i've read i've educated myself i've gained all this knowledge Um, the challenge is good and the questions are good and they have to stay. But what I think I would implore is that it doesn't come from a place of mistrust. Um, Mm. I think when, when, you know, when healthcare professionals go to work, I don't necessarily feel like anyone goes to work with the headspace that I am going to be mean to a group of patients. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is unconscious bias. I think a lot of it is um, ingrained sort of systemic um, racism as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know as black women we need to be aware of what is right um, and what is and what quote-unquote normality is and things like that and when things are going wrong we need to sort of be aware to challenge and to make sure that you feel the clinician looking after you has your best interest at heart yeah. and I feel like the only way that you can get to that level of trust is with engaging um with with the medical professional so in antenatal services engage with the midwife turn up ask questions Mm. because that's where you really have the time to challenge and to find out Mm. if you're started on medication you should ask what it's for why you need it how long you need it for Mm. Um, but then also get a support system so um i know there are lots of um community groups where there'll be you know, groups of pregnant black women all together who can share their information, share their experiences as well. If you've got um, sisters, aunts and mums that you trust, have them present so that they Mm. can speak on things that you may have forgotten to ask. Write your questions down. Um, But fundamentally challenge, have someone who has your back. If during labour you feel that your voice will be... um, you know your voice will be ignored have an advocate like there are groups like there are um, sort of different community groups and racial groups who have like doulas and and support systems when they come into labor so that they can challenge on their behalf um so i think it's very important that the challenge is there but it shouldn't come from a place of mistrust or oh even if the doctor says this i'm not going to do it because the doctor doesn't know what they're talking about so it definitely shouldn't come from Um, I I don't think it should come from that place because I think in that mistrust with the medical profession, there is also potential for harm Um, and it will be the patient I think that suffers more from it. But yeah, I think from our point of view, it's all about education, empowerment as well. Um, And then I think I I genuinely think for the people who work within the system, we have to try and challenge the system from within. So, you know, if I'm on a ward round and I feel like everyone's talking over or around a patient and the patient doesn't um, understand, just a simple question like, do you have any questions before we leave? Does all of that make sense? And there would be times I'll be in a room and I know the patient doesn't get it, but they're also too shy to say. And Mm. then, you know, just to maybe take time out again and be like just going back and double checking and triple checking, because especially in childbirth, this is an experience you won't forget. Like it stays with you. Mm. It affects how you bond with your child. Um, And I just think you have to empower yourself to get the best that you can out of it. Mm. And hopefully just come across... um, Sensible clinicians who have your, you know, who are there to, for you as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, just off the back of that, I've had conversations with my friends, um, quite a few young people about this, and their expectation is is simple: it's that I get pregnant, and then I go to the GP, and then I go to the doctors, or you know, on the labour ward, and they sort it out. There isn't the really, I don't really hear a lot of young people taking into account the fact that they do need to do their research that's not something that they think about when I speak to the, them in general the main the general consensus is but these are healthcare professionals they 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 are the they are the ones who should be giving me that care who should be offering mm-hmm. me that care who should be telling me what I need to know about this process what, what are your thoughts on that
2: so I can liken it to, so when we started putting our daughter at nursery we had a, so this is just obviously a metaphor, but um, we had a friend who was a nursery manager and she said every time you go to nursery ask them what she did today, how her day went and all of that because they all know if you question them at the door when they're with her during the day they're more likely to take note of the things that she's doing. um And if I'm in, uh, and similarly in healthcare, if you find a patient that's engaging, that's asking questions, that wants the best, that wants to know all the options, as a doctor, you make sure you provide all those options the next time you see them, Mm -hmm. and you make sure that you take into account what they're going to say. So this is a very, this is obviously sort of blanket experience from where I've come across. When I see Um, So Mary might know more about this, but there tend to be like maternity safety boards where they invite people, like mothers from the local community, to come and sit on the board to find out how the maternity service is run. And the women that, again, are represented on that type of board tend to be white middle-class women, so they know about the complaint system. So when they're seen in clinic, um, you just automatically have an air of, if I mess up, this person will complain. Um, and you don't necessarily get that feeling or vibe from other groups of women. So then you're a bit more relaxed in their presence. So I'm not saying to put your clinicians on edge, but if you go into if you go into a setting where you're asking questions, where you're challenging, where you want to gain the knowledge for yourself, you are forcing that healthcare professional yeah. to take the time to make sure you understand. And then you, and then when you make a decision, you are empowered to do so. And then you probably have them on side as well, mm-hmm. um, so that if they saw someone else trying to rush through your care, they're more likely to take the time again so i think it's all about human interaction it's almost like you know if you engage with someone and you're friends with someone and you talk to them they're just more likely to be aware of what it is you want and what your outcomes are afterwards and i i hope i'm making sense but um you can't i genuinely don't think you can go through the process passively Mm. um yeah that's i think that's basically my point you can't go through the process passively like you have to be engaged and intentional um, about everything that involves your care while pregnant
1: I mean from my point of view as a, as a GP I completely agree with all of that um, I think though the difficulty is there are this is all well and good for the well educated patient that like you alluded to that in the person who's likely to complain but the truth of the matter is there is a significant proportion that I deal with who don't And this is not in any way to be disparaging, but they don't have an education. For example, they don't have the education level required to appraise a situation. Do you see what I'm saying? And ask all the pertinent questions. Uh, So I, I think that we, I do think, as as GPs anyway, we do have to be mindful that every patient is different and we need to um, respond accordingly. So, you know, as GPs, they always teach us this ice. So ice is what is a patient's ideas, concerns and expectations. Mm-hmm. But if, if, you, if you do ice with the wrong type of patient, uh, it, it can lead to the, that interaction going down a really difficult route and and that's where our skills as communicators has Mm -hmm. to come into play which is 100% what what Mary was saying is like sometimes and I know how it happens on hospitals I've worked in hospitals they just throw them the tablets they don't even tell them sometimes they have told them and they've forgotten which is fine as well we know patients recall what is it 10 20 percent of, of 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 what they're told. So this is the rea- We have to be realistic. You know, it would be nice if everyone, and and and, uh, could completely take charge of of their of their life. But that's realistically, I based on what I see in terms of general uh, patient behavior, I, I I don't see a time where everyone is going to be able to act like that. Which, which is why I feel like the change. Does need to like, of course, empowerment, education, education, empowerment, but also strategic levels from our point of view. Like we've already identified issues where, you know, having having the lack, having a lack of a non-white decision maker leads to problems for non-white people. You you know what I'm yeah. saying? So we need to install that at every level. So the way the services is, is 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 designed no one is left behind do you know what i'm trying to say so um uh, we have this thing called the inverse care law so it's like we set up all these things and the people who are fine and educated in any way they're the people who are Mm -hmm. able to take advantage of it it's the people who don't have the education who don't have the i don't know how to put it um you know without sounding disparaging but that they're not interested in learning how to pronounce ibuprofen or bisoprolol or, you know, whichever drug that they've been given aspirin, it's been, it's Mm. too, it's too much for them to, to remember. And, and that's also fine, but we need to look after those people as well and make sure they're not disadvantaged. So I think that that's where our, our responsibility to design and and 100% where it was like the simplest things it's like you we think we're doctors it's so complicated but it's no it's like really ha- have you understood what this is do you know how many times a day you're going to take it and how long you're going to take it for that's the the key one as well you know you know the mm. amount of patients that think they've been put on a course of antihypertensives. no that you take this antihypertensive <laughs> for the rest of your life you know,
3: <laughs> you,
2: you know what i'm saying
1: like so um yeah, I did have another thing I really wanted to say and I've completely forgotten it. I'm sorry. But, no, um...
0: but if it comes back, just hold on to it. Um, I, yeah. I just wanted to add, it just seems, it sounds a little bit like a class thing. It's almost like if you're middle class. Mm. then you A hundred, have per, more... yeah. a
3: hundred percent. It
0: a hundred percent. is, and
3: it's an understanding of the system as yeah. well. If you, if you don't grow up in the system, and it, it, that's not even, I wouldn't even say that's a class thing. If you're somebody who has access to healthcare. If you've had, um, for example, you know, a medical condition that's meant you've spent a long time in, in hospitals and around the system, you know how to navigate it. If your first time of entering into the healthcare service is when you're pregnant, you have no idea what mm. is acceptable, what is what is feasible, What so you do sit there and kind of wait to be told where to go and what to do next. It's the idea around, so there's lots of women who, make it to their scans and don't realize that they're a midwife's appointment so you see them at 28 weeks and you're like you've been to all of your scans why have you not been a midwife I didn't know I needed to they told me the baby was fine at the scan and I thought that was what antenatal care was so if you yeah. have no knowledge you have no knowledge you don't know what you don't know mm. so it is you know and I do really agree with what you're saying to is it's about yes For me, especially when I used to work on on the labour ward, it's not the women that are well-educated that I need to worry so much Mm -hmm. about because I know your voice is strong. But Mm -hmm. when I have somebody who English isn't their first language and the consultant is doing ward round and they're speaking loudly and slowly, and I'm saying, actually... That doesn't make her understand English. We have language line and we need to use (laughs) interpreting services because Mm. speaking loud and slow at somebody doesn't now translate it to their language. Mm. And it's about what do we do? Mm. Do we do things for an easy life for ourselves? I'll just do the, I'll do the footwork. I'll say I've said it, even though I know she has no way of understanding me. Or do Mm. we do the thing that takes an extra 15 minutes to find the interpreter, to sit down with her phone and to have the conversations and to hear her questions. And so it is, yes those who can should but actually my biggest worry is those who can't and what do we do about those who can't how do we make sure that those who can't don't know how to Mm. how do we make sure that they have an equal amount of care an equal amount of kind of understanding and input into the what the care provisions that we're giving them Mm.
0: Wow. wow that's such an interesting point you made i mean even in relation to that, Mary, just a question for you. Um, if Black women are being ignored on the labour ward, what can we do? What should we do at that point? You know, say, for example, they're complaining about a pain and they're feeling like no one's listening to them. What's, what happens then?
3: So I think it's like with, with all things. If, if I speak to you, and you're not listening to me. As a woman in labour, it's difficult for me to get up and go and look for someone else. So advocacy is your biggest tool. You need to know that the people in the room with you are a strong voice for you. If you have nobody, that's where it's really difficult. So some women come in and they have no birth companion, they have no birth partner. My job as a midwife is to be your advocate. And the majority of us feel that way and we will be a strong voice. We will be the voice for that woman. so if, if you're talking to, I don't know, you're talking to an anesthetist and they're saying, "Oh, actually, you don't you don't need an epidural. Why don't you try some pepidin? Although they don't do that. Um, you know, my job as a midwife is to say, "Actually, this is what she's asking for. So now's the time for her to have it." Yeah. If, if you're saying, "Look, I don't want to go home," it's not about, "Okay, we don't have." You shouldn't be here because you're not quite in labour yet. My job as a midwife is to find, okay, maybe you're not meant to be in the labour ward, but I'll admit you to the antenatal ward because if for your comfort and for your mm-hmm. well-being that's going to help, that's what I need to do. Yeah. So if for women that don't have advocates, we're definitely the people that need to be their advocates. But for those women who have a good support network and maybe don't even realise it, that's why birth preferences are quite important because if the person that's your birth partner knows what your ideals were before this even started, they can say, actually, you know what? This is what we were thinking. Is there a reason why this has changed? Is mm. there a reason why we're no longer going down that route? Is there a reason why you're making these recommendations? And you can never, you can never work as an individual silo. You know, yeah. a community is what makes it happen. Yeah. So it's who you bring with you. And it's what we do as healthcare professionals to make sure that those few women that have nobody don't feel alone.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, so we're coming to a close now. Um, can you give us maybe some final words of encouragement from each and every one of you um, about this topic because it is quite a sensitive topic within our community Um, and it would just be good to get some positivity and a bit of encouragement in general um, in terms of how we can move forward or you know things to bear in mind for, for future.
3: I would just say I think we're in a pivotal point at the moment there's lots of people are starting to hear our voice as black women as black people people are starting to hear and I think that in healthcare and maternity in particular never be afraid to use your voice never be afraid to be that angry black woman never be afraid to ask the questions because more often than not you will be heard and I think sometimes not, not knowing that someone has a question means you can't deal with the issue so I would say the positive thing to take out of all of this is know that people want to hear your voice and, and speak up never be afraid to speak up never be afraid to kind of voice your concerns voice your complaints and if it's not being heard by the person you're speaking to now there are channels find out what the channels are how do you escalate it how do you speak to someone further how do you get an appointment with your consultant midwife who's going to be your advocate how do you get an appointment with a listening clinic who's going to debrief you on your traumatic birth always always feel confident in the fact that we want to hear your voice and now's a good time people are
0: listening
1: I was going to say, I've, I've found this just podcast, listening to Remy and, uh, and Mary, just really positive in itself, like these really strong, powerful people out there doing all this work. And, and for me, this moment as well really feels like, although I'm not saying things have changed, it's like the first time you can turn around and say, this is not okay and you won't get completely shut down straight away, mm-hmm. and for me, that was quite powerful. I spent quite a lot of my career um, you know just I can only speak from my own point of view and uh, and obviously the patriarchy is something else that needs to be challenged but but for my you know my own career um, you know fighting against being labeled a certain way because of my Nigerian heritage, and it was it was very. Kind of emancipating to finally Mm. be be able to you know be like okay so i wasn't just making it all up i don't just have this chip on my shoulder and now i I, i'm 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 grateful grateful is the world i'm hopeful and i'm happy and uh i'm excited that things will move forward things take time they do take time yeah but 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 like, like, like we've like we've seen with corona a split bang and boom things are moving so mm. so I, I i i'm on that side like i know there's snakes and skeptics and a lot of my friends are like whatever it's just gonna be the same old same old i already feel like it's not the same old same old you know mm. so i i think that in itself should be encouraging and positive and uh, i'm really grateful thank you for uh, uh, you know imparting your expertise and I feel like I've learned a lot so I feel like that's yeah, positive too. in itself yeah
0: me too Remy
2: um yes um sorry remind me of the question because oh, I was positive.
0: <laughs> just the <a> final word <laughs> final words of encouragement for our audience anything to take away yeah um, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I guess I think um final word of encouragement would be um Even with the statistics, the numbers are small, and that's not to minimise anyone's experience or um, or anyone's fears or anxieties. But just to to give you reassurance that, especially within the UK, pregnancy, postpartum, you know, neonatal care is relatively is still comparably safe. Um, But it's important to, like Mary said, have your voice and to speak up, and just to have a support system um, that's for you. Um, and then just to go into it with the um, thought process that you're willing to engage and find out more. Yeah. Um, and I think also there has to be, um, yes, the medical professional's there and yes, the doctors are there, but they shouldn't be your only source of information. Mm. Um, speak to people who've been through it, speak to your speak to your own sort of networks, create your own little support groups yes. um, and things like that. And, and you know, and just hope that as you, Go through pregnancy, you learn more, you gain, you gain access to a system that you probably aren't familiar with, um, and then you can use that information for your sisters, for your friends, for your yeah. children. Um, yeah, and I think, and that's, I think that's it. And also, I think because of the way the system is now, because of all the things that we're learning about, we have known that there needs to be individualized care pathways because yeah. there are women who can engage and there are women who can't engage and those women shouldn't be left behind Mm -hmm. and i definitely think with covid um there will be a push for that so the royal college of obstetrics and gynaecology has already started a racial um a task force looking at racial inequality in maternity care so there are definitely things that are shifting um Mm -hmm. to, to capture everybody um and just to know that you know because it is this way in twenty twenty, like we look to the future and we hope for more. There are more Black doctors. There are definitely more Black doctors on Instagram and um, be it GPs, dermatologists, like who are who are speaking up and having their say, um, in order to make healthcare safer for for their own community. And um, so I, I'm I'm hopeful. I I see that there's a lot of change happening, um, and even in like the smallness of of. Um, of the day where if you meet a patient who is hard done by just being that patient advocate as well um and i just think like in in all of those activities that's where the gems come from so it doesn't necessarily need to be some massive um thing from government or from above or from the college if you can be there for your sister or a friend there's power in that if i as a doctor can be there for a patient who has nobody there's power in that. If I'm on a busy day and I, I make the time to use the language, like, like there is power in just the one interaction. And I think mm. that's what humanity as a whole is made up of. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so just, yeah. So that would be, that would be my final thought. There was lots of thoughts, but yeah. <laughs> yeah but, no, but this has been really good. And I've learned from Tima from and Mary and, and yourself. And I just think that um, the more we talk about it, the more we understand, mm. the more our own thought processes are challenged. Mm. And then mm. we then go into the clinical setting or, or the management setting. Again, there's challenge in that. And we can mm. take that challenge to challenge other people. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's definitely power in, in this as well.
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Thank, Thank you so much, you know, guys. It was honestly such an amazing talk. It was so inspirational and even enlightening to hear your experiences on each and every one of your um, sectors um and you know we yeah it was a pleasure having you and we definitely look forward to hearing from you and you know seeing what you're you're doing and connecting with you again so thank you so much thank you
1: thank Thank you thank you so much guys